1: And welcome back to New Books in Eastern European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Siegel, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Yelena Subotic, who comes to us uh, as a professor in the Department of Political Science at Georgia State University. Her new book, Just Out, 2019, with Cornell University Press is called Yellow Star, Red Star, Holocaust Remembrance After Communism. Welcome to our podcast.
2: Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you.
1: A little bit about um, Professor Suvotich. So um, she writes broadly about international relations theory, memory politics, human rights, transnational justice, international ethics, state identity, and the politics of the Western Balkans. Her first book is called Hijacked Justice, Dealing with the Past in the Balkans, also with Cornell University Press in 2009. Uh, This is a book that's been translated and published um, in Serbia. Her research has appeared uh, in a number of places, both academic and public journals, public policy journals. These include International Studies Quarterly, European Journal of International Relations, Journal of Peace Research, Foreign Policy Analysis, and many others. Uh, and I should say um, also that Dr. Sibotic is a frequent commentator on war crimes and the politics of the Balkans uh, for many international outlets, including um, CNN and BBC. So I'll start with a question. Um, I get the impression reading this wonderful book, Yellow Star, Red Star, that, that it, is, it is a very personal book. Could you tell us what prompted you to write it?
2: Yes. Uh, The book, it's interesting. The book ended up being more personal than I thought it was going to be. Uh, What prompted me really was more of a kind of scholarly interest in why is it that so many years since the end of World War II, there are still serious problems with how the Holocaust is remembered or rather misremembered, misinterpreted in vast swaths of Europe. My particular interest was in Eastern Europe. I'm a scholar of Eastern Europe, and particularly in the Western Balkans, which I know the best. So I wanted to explore what is it that makes this uh, historical event at the same time incredibly important, but also incredibly unimportant uh, in the ways in which it's remembered and represented in the countries of Eastern Europe. So I wanted to understand why this is happening. And partly, I was motivated by my previous work, which was on the wars of the 1990s in the former Yugoslavia. And it became quite obvious to me that a lot of the problems with memory of those Yugoslav wars of the 1990s are problems that really go much more uh, back further into the past. And they're interplayed with memories of the World War, or World War II and memories of the Holocaust. So that was a kind of scholarly interest in, in, in why we're saying what we're saying. And then as I started researching the book, I realized that to, uh, I guess, partly chagrin, um, I have some personal uh, family history that ended up being part of the book, uh, which is that I found out that there was um, a role that my own grandfather played in the early days of the Nazi occupation of Serbia in 1941, which I have not previously known. And so as I started to realize that my own family has a relationship to both the history of the Holocaust and the way in which the Holocaust is remembered, I went down that path for a little bit and tried to understand uh, what is it that he specifically did, but not really writing a book about him, but more, more using the example of somebody who was... Uh, a collaborator, but also a resister, somebody who tried to protect his friends, but also worked for the collaborationist government. What does that understanding of collaboration uh, do for our understanding of what the Holocaust was like, uh, how it was interpreted by non Jewish uh, ethnic majorities in those countries, and what does it also do to how we understand the role of non Jewish minorities, uh, both during the Holocaust and today? In Eastern Europe
1: yeah and I think in including your family narrative especially it's interesting because the stories that that families tell about each other individuals are are much more shaped by ideologies or or maybe anti ideologies than we think Um, and so you actually have this very interesting moment in the preference and talking about this and and uncovering things that that you didn't know, and I'll read it and ask for your reaction. You write uh, in the preface, my family's narrative was mostly one of anti-communism, of the horrors of the Russian Revolution my Russian grandmother experienced as a child. The many arrests and humiliations my grandfather suffered at the hands of Yugoslav communists after the war. And for my parents, the censorship and one-party rule under Tito, and the difficult life in the early years of communism. There were memories of abject poverty and insecurity, and for my father, memories of his childhood in a Croatian Ustasha concentration camp, a formative trauma that has, I believe, shaped shaped the rest of his life. My family narrative then was one of our own suffering. It was overwhelming and passive. It was also all true, but it did not allow much room for the memory of suffering of others.
2: So, yeah, thank you for reading that. Um, It was important for me to convey that part of the ethical impetus, if you will, for writing um, this book for me was to talk about memories of others. And uh, by talking a little bit about how our own family history was remembered, it became quite clear to me that a big problem with how the past is remembered is that the past is remembered through our own immediate experience and almost exclusively through the experience of our own victimization. And I saw that very specifically in the way in which, as you just read, my own family history has been narrated to me as the family of our own suffering, suffering by various others, suffering like from communists and suffering during the occupation by the Gestapo and suffering from, Tito and suffering from Milosevic and suffering from many other uh, uh, evil uh, empires and, and regimes throughout the 20th century, but there was very little in it that provided for understanding of uh, how others suffered, including perhaps how others suffered when we had something to do with it, even tangentially. And so I felt as somebody who's writing a book on memory, I really had to talk about the memory that shaped my own understanding, to really position myself in the book and explain what is it that I was taught and how what I was taught then changed how I approach um, the the memory of the 20th century. But I also wanted to use that as an example to talk not just about family memory, but talk about national memory. And uh, most of the book really talks about how the problem with Holocaust memory in Eastern Europe is that the memory of the of World War II in the region is a memory of ethnic majority suffering. So it's memory a memory about Polish suffering or Lithuanian suffering or Serbian suffering or Croatian suffering. And that memory, just as the memory in my own family, was so overwhelming and that narrative was so powerful, it really clouded out any space, both moral space, ethical space, and cognitive space to understand the suffering and trauma that others uh, lived through at that same time.
1: Yeah. And I think of the first generation of, of memory scholars, writers, people like Pierre Nora, uh, or um, Claude Lanzmann's Shoah, um, going back now 30, 40 years about the spaces of memory. Um, And, and I think um, what I want to come to next is your case studies. So, Um, You have a fascinating world of concepts. Ontological insecurities is one. Memory appropriation is another. Um, Eastern European of Holocaust remembrance is another. So how do the memories become particularized in in your view in in countries like Serbia and Croatia and Lithuania, which you feature?
2: Right. So I was interested in the process by which Uh, the the specific countries that I dedicate most space to, as you said, these are Serbia, Croatia, and Lithuania, how they encountered the, by that time, uh, post-communists of 1991 and later, a relatively solidified narrative of the Holocaust that has developed in the West. And I I narrate the story about how uh, the governments in these countries realized as part of their Progress towards the European Union, they really had to talk about World War II in a way that's more uh, readable and comprehensible to uh, Western Europe and to Eastern uh, to to European Union ears. The problem, of course, was that these were not the types of memories that developed organically in these countries. Uh, During the long uh, era of communism, the talk about the Holocaust was marginalized, almost uh, non-existent. Most of the remembrance of World War II was remembrance of uh, victory of communist forces against fascists or of victims of fascism or uh, kind of glorious battle of the national liberation movement. But there was really very little interest, if any, into the actual uh, process and consequences of the Holocaust. So, what these countries realized is that they are facing a little bit of a conundrum. They had to talk about the Holocaust for the EU ears, but how do they do that when that is not something that they actually are interested in or feel themselves? So, so uh, as part of that process of EU accession, they uh, used the stories of the Holocaust to really tell their own national particular story. To use the suffering of the Jews, as my chapter on Serbia talks at length about, to really tell the stuff to talk about the suffering of the Serbs, or in Croatia to use the story of the Holocaust to talk about Serbian aggression on Croatia in the 1990s, or in Lithuania, to use the suffering of the Holocaust to talk about the long period of Soviet oppression. So this is not complete denial of the Holocaust. This is not even a complete forgetting that a Holocaust happened. It's just a very specific instrumentalization of the Holocaust to talk about other political battles that are important for these countries in the present.
1: Yeah, and you write, um, if I can pick a passage at the end of chapter one, before you move to uh, your Serbian chapter at the Belgrade Fairgrounds, um, you write uh, quite a lot about the applicability of Holocaust memory remembrance as a foundation um, for EU politics and and for EU enlargement. So there's a particular um, moment that struck me on page 44, you write, As the EU has enlarged to the East, a completely new set of memories and demonic practices was introduced to the European narrative. This process has been neither easy nor smooth, and it is far from resolved. It has also produced tremendous narrative rewriting, relaxing some of the most established mnemonic canons of the 20th century, the memory of the Holocaust in parentheses, which has in turn created a political environment fertile for memory challenges, disruptions, and revisions. Encouraged by the EU's declarations equating crimes of Nazism with crimes of communism under the umbrella of crimes of totalitarianism, many Eastern European states have appropriated Holocaust memory and even imagery to talk about crimes of previous communist regimes. Holocaust remembrance then is no longer about the Holocaust at all, but it is about a very acute ontological security, very acute ontological security needs of new states that are building their identity as fundamentally anti-communist, which then in turn makes them more legitimately European and capitalist. That's such a strong statement. I wonder if you can talk about that.
2: Right. So my Interpretation of these uh, memory battles or mnemonic battles uh, at the end of communism are built an understanding of state identity that uh, in international relations has developed a scholarship on ontological security. And so very briefly, what I mean by that is understanding that uh, just like individuals need calm, predictability, routine, a sense of who they are, a sense of where they came from. So do societies, and so do states. And the understanding of states as having a particular kind of identity that needs to be stable, understood, shared by most uh, citizens as something that positions these states in the international society is a cornerstone of a of a kind of understanding of how the international system works in in this particular type of international relations that I contribute to. So taking that assumption that states need a particular set of identity, I then understood the fall of communism and the collapse of communist regimes as a huge rupture in those routines and a huge break with continuity. Everything that we thought we knew about how our system worked, how our state is supposed to function. What is our relationship between us as citizens to the state? What is our relationship of our state to the international system? What is the relationship between our state in the East versus other states in the West? All of that has been um, ruptured by this massive change in international order, which was the end of communism. And so I trace how that rupture in the system has really shaken m- major uh, political narratives that uh, used to underpin a sense of national identity. And so those are the changes that then opened up this space for a complete narrative uh, reshaping to talk about the past in a completely different way than you had to or f- were forced to under communism and then in that space of kind of narrative chaos if you will at the end of communism and an attempt of these countries to reposition themselves to be closer to the west to uh, in 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 some ways go back to europe where they thought communism took took them out of europe for a long time they encountered this huge pressure from european union and various european union agencies to finally deal appropriately with the Holocaust, the Holocaust is a central feature of East European history of the 20th century, and yet it, for the longest time, was completely absent for us, for from national identity of these countries, and so they faced the real dilemma of how to fill that narrative chaos. And as I explained uh, briefly in, um, uh, in answer to your previous question, they tried to do that by really using what we all think we understand about the Holocaust. We, on, we all understand the visual narration and the visual repertoire of the Holocaust. We, all, you know, we have all seen the Schindler's List. We all know what it looks like to have abandoned luggage and to have those trains on tracks taking people to camps. And we all understand what abandoned glasses look like. So they used those same images and then talked about how communism was just as bad. And so various uh, memory museums and historical museums that popped up all across Eastern Europe would now routinely show both visual images from the Holocaust next to explanations and captions that would say, yes, this was the Holocaust, but this was exactly the same type of terror, the same type of brutality, the same type of cruelty that we all suffered under communism. So they did not... Uh, deny that the Holocaust happened, but they used it very, very specifically to talk about how communism was the principal feature of their own trauma of the 20th century. And by uh, taking a clean break with communism, turning a new page, they can more legitimately join the EU and they can more legitimately join the history of Western Europe.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: who is the author of Yellow Star, Red Star, Holocaust Remembrance After Communism, a book just published with Cornell University Press. Uh, I wanted to ask about this connection between memorializing the Holocaust and the specific example of Serbia's EU aspirations. So uh, what I find interesting is, uh, especially in the 2000s, the kind of belated commemorations that take place with things like International Holocaust Remembrance Day, um, which doesn't start in Serbia until 2006. So could you talk about Serbia and the, the sort of disharmony? I don't know if that's the right word, but what, what is there, let's say, in the commemorations on the level of political elites and EU aspirations in comparison to what's there in Serbian media and with the larger population?
2: Yes. Um, So, Serbian remembrance of the Holocaust is very interesting because in many ways, Serbia doesn't seem to have a problem with remembering the Holocaust to the extent extent that other countries I talk about do. Serbia has a very positive uh, view of its own uh, World War II history. It has a view that there was no uh, popular anti-Semitism before World War II, which is true. Uh, there's also a very widely shared narrative that there were no uh, pogroms of Serbs against Jews, which is also true. Uh, there's a narrative of large numbers of righteous Gentile Serbs who helped their Jewish uh, neighbors, which is partly true. Uh, and But there was no need necessarily like uh, there was in Croatia or Lithuania, my other two cases, to really um, cover the tracks, if if you will, of what really happened. What was more important for Serbian political project after the end of communism was to use the history of the Holocaust and to use the suffering of the Jews to really portray Serbs as those who suffered more, Serbs as victims of Nazism, Serbs as victims of Communism and more importantly, Serbs as victims of creations and Serbs as victims in the wars of the 1990s. So much of the remembrance of the Holocaust, such as it was uh, since mid2000s and on, uh, was put in, in this in this kind of strange, broader narrative of how Serbs and Jews are brethren, Serbs and Jews were killed together, Serbs and Jews suffered together, and we all know by whom. And there was this kind of underlying tension that everybody knows what we're talking about, and we're talking really about uh, about Croatia. So in that sense, remembrance of the Holocaust served very particular foreign policy needs of Serbia at that moment to project itself as a victim. Uh, and especially important in the mid-2000s was to deflect this very negative image that Serbia and Serbs had at that time in the West because of the atrocities that the Milosevic regime uh, carried out or helped uh, pay uh, and support uh, to be carried out in, in, in Bosnia, Croatia, and Kosovo. And so the Holocaust and the suffering of the Jews was used to show the world, if you will, that Serbs are actually... Not the villains or the perpetrators, but they themselves uh, are the victims of the major crimes of the 20th century.
1: I'm particularly interested in the comparisons that you draw between Croatia and Serbia. So I'll read a passage from your chapter three, which is called Croatia's Islands of Memory, in which you talk about the normalization of the Ustasha during the war. You write on page 123... The legitimacy of post-communist Croatia was built on a complete rejection of communism and a renewed connection to the pre-communist, mythically nationally pure character of its statehood. This is why the new post-communist elites insisted on rehabilitating many anti-communist public figures, including many pro-fascist allies, The goal behind this national project was to sidestep the communist past as a legitimate period of the country's history and institute a clear historical connection with the pre-communist state, creating an inspirational model for the contemporary manifestation of ethnic statehood and stabilizing Croatia's state identity through time.
2: So what I wanted to uh, express in the Croatians chapter is the serious problem that Croatia has with its past. Unlike Serbia, which we just discussed, Croatia has a direct relationship to the Holocaust in the sense that it was uh, a a fascist statelet, uh, in some ways dependent, but in some ways independent from Germany, the uh, historic independent state of Croatia that existed on the Croatian territory and what's part of today's Bosnia and some parts of northern Serbia since 1941 until 1945, um, that it was that regime, it was the regime of the fascist militia di Ustasa that ran their own camps, that uh, managed their own killing sprees, that rounded Jews up and sent them to concentration camps, many of them to Auschwitz. So this is not something that, like in the Serbian case, can be easily outsourced to the Germans. This was something that was done by the Croatian regime itself. Uh, And the problem for Croatia is that since the end of communism and since the end of the Yugoslav Wars, Croatia tried very hard to join the European Union and to establish itself as a mostly central uh, and then partly Western European state. But how do you build your state identity? How do you make a claim? for sovereignty? How do you make a claim of self-determination building on your historical claims of of national statehood when the only other time that you were independent was during the independent state of Croatia, a country that was rooted in genocide? And so what I uh, trace in the book are many ways in which various politicians, intellectual, cultural elite in Croatia um, in the '90s and in the years in the 2000s, try to somehow uh, jump over the unusable past of the independent state of Croatia and talk about this myth- mythical uh, past that Croatia had prior to fascism. That this is the Cre- the Croatia that um, should be independent. That this is the Croatia that has built its own uh, reason for existence, and to really ignore. Uh, most of the history of the of the World War II in Croatia and to really not talk about at all about what the independent state of Croatia was and what it represented.
1: Yeah. And you talk about the importance of the camps and deportations. Um, and and I, I really can't help but notice again that there's a very personal um, dimension to this, uh, in not just in talking about Ustasha and, and the deportations, but, but the story of the camps in quick succession, um, these include, um, Yasenovac, I think there are several others, Slana. Um, is, is there something that, that drew you to the study of, of the camps and deportations in particular?
2: Yes, of course. I mean, you, you, You really cannot understand how the Holocaust played out in Croatia without understanding this unbelievable archipelago of concentration and death camps uh, that Croatia established. In many ways, these were such uh, horrible, cruel camps. (laughs) Of course, they all are, but there were some unique aspects of Ustasha cruelty that are even shocking to students and scholars of the Holocaust. And I, I really thought it was important to narrate that entire history because it 's so uh, covered up, so ignored, so obfuscated in today 's Croatia, uh, and has such um, relevance for both the Croatian national identity as it is today, but also I think for the broader issue about what fascism really was like, for example, I talk a lot about a particularly heinous camp at um, outside of city of Sisak in Croatia, which was a camp for um unaccompanied children. And uh, to my knowledge, this is the only camp exclusively for unaccompanied children during the entire period of the Nazi Holocaust anywhere in Europe. These were children that were taken from mostly communist partisan uh, fighters who were captured or killed elsewhere, often in uh, on the Bosnian battlefield. There were some Jewish children as well. Most of these children were Serb. And they were left in this camp to basically die uh, from starvation, exposure, and disease. And I find it so really painful and, 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 and morally uh, repugnant that today the history of the camp at CISEC is almost not mentioned in Croatia. I talk a lot about how when students in a high school uh, just a few years ago tried to uh, write an essay uh, and do some research on the history of this camp, uh, they were denied the prize by the high, by high school they attended because that was their project was considered anti-Croatian. Um, I also, as you mentioned, have a little bit of a personal history. I mentioned very briefly that that my father was interned as a child with his mother at one of the camps in stargradishka and um, as as you have uh, very generously read from my preface, I talk about how this trauma of him spending his um, uh, ninth and 10th birthday in this horrible camp where so many women and and children were killed really impacted his worldview, his understanding of his own identity, and the way in which he um, remembered the war and the way in which he and I had arguments about uh, our own family memory and victimization. So I thought that that whole story needed to be there to really... uh, present a comprehensive picture of the horrors of the independent state of Croatia and the importance of remembering it both for the victims and the perpetrators today.
1: Yeah, and and you talk about the, I'm not sure if denialism is the right word, but there are principal memory actors in Croatia. You list them as right-wing political parties, intellectual lead, the media, historical um, commissions. Who, who are engaged in this act of, of historical forgetting, which is described as revisionism, but in many ways um, becomes an institutionalization of amnesia. Uh, and I think that's, uh, that's quite a frightening thing um, in talking about the, the turn toward authoritarianism and, and the criminalization of communism. Uh, in the 2000 teens. Uh, I'll just a- add one thing. I mean, I remember uh, I worked as a graduate student as a translator on the Encyclopedia of Camps and Ghettos, this, this huge project with the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. And I translated uh, over 300 entries on um, the stories of small towns, of people who had populations completely vanished. And uh, I, I want to turn actually from this um, out of Yugoslavia to Lithuania, because um, in your chapter on Lithuania, the long shadows of Vilna, um, this this too is a comparison which I think uh, historians um, often um, fail to make, largely because historians don't have the linguistic capabilities. But this is a, a tremendously interesting chapter, um, which. Covers the very fact, and it should be stated as a fact, that 95% of Lithuanian Jews um, vanished, were killed, exterminated, and that's the highest rate um, for the Holocaust of extermination of any Jewish group um, during this time period. So I, I want to turn to that. Uh, how, how do you compare Yugoslavia, let's say, with other countries, with other ethno states and, and their efforts at institutionalized memory?
2: Yeah, so I wanted to, in some ways, compare the most different cases and not the most similar ones. And my motivation here was to talk about how even countries that had very different experiences of the Holocaust, different matrix of victim perpetrator, different histories of communism, different histories of post-communist transition, different histories of accession to the EU, still have problems with the Holocaust. And i wanted wanting to understand, what is it about a Holocaust, in addition to obvious anti-Semitism, but we, that's too easy of, a, of an answer to say, you know, it's just anti-Semitism there, as I document many more and very complex historical, political, and national um, projects at stake here. What is it that these very des- disparate cases uh, really, at the end of the day, have in common in how... They refuse to or are unable to or are unwilling to really um, come to terms with their own complicity in the um, uh, extermination of their fellow citizens and what that refusal to uh, honestly talk about the suffering of others does to contemporary political and social identities in these countries. So obviously the history of the Holocaust in in Lithuania is so much different uh, as was the period of the Soviet rule um but it's also something that i think can bring uh the the larger narrative arc of the holocaust together i was i was very interested in in bringing some of these cases that are often considered to be on the periphery of the holocaust we actually in holocaust historiography know much more about lithuania certainly than about serbia or about croatia and i wanted to bring some of those southeast european cases in larger conversation with the more established cases that the Holocaust historiography has spent uh, pages and pages on, uh, such as, for example, the the, the really uh, horrendous uh, ground zero, if you will, um, uh, Holocaust in Lithuania.
1: Yeah. And for the case of Lithuania, it, it is, I think, extremely important to look at what, what you call institutions of sanctioned memory. So um, the importance of museums like the Museum of Genocide and Occupation, um, which was pretty early. Uh, it opened in Vilnius in, in 1992. But at the same time, uh, I think um, you pay very, very close attention to this, this um, Soviet genocide narrative and, and the, the double occupation thesis and the two totalitarianisms do you, do you see anything positive in the Lithuanian example? I, I think that both the Serbian and Croatian examples are, are, are in many ways, um, quite dark and quite negative.
2: Lithuania is a, is a very difficult case um, because the uh, as you as you pointed out the the rates of Jewish annihilation are so high and the. Remains remains of Jewish life are so few and far between, and the levels of anti-Semitism continue to be much higher than, for example, in Serbia and Croatia. So the so-called Jewish problem in Lithuania, um, in in many ways, at least at the level of kind of memory and narrative, uh, remains. Um, what is also interesting about Lithuania is that it has become such an important international actor. In trying to not only portray um, the long period of Soviet occupation as genocide against uh, Lithuanian citizens, but also to import um, to uh, sorry, to export that narrative into larger European Union politics and European parliament resolutions. Lithuania has been very, very active in lobbying other countries, uh, other EU member states to expand their understanding of uh, totalitarianism to include uh, the Soviet occupation, to expand the definition of genocide, to include Soviet occupation as a period of genocide. And I find those moves incredibly troubling, in some ways more troubling than the moves that Croatia and Serbia have done, because Serbia and Croatia were more interested in their own Portrayal, their own international status, their own international reputation. Lithuania seems to be interested in in more regional uh, memory change, in more regional narrative uh, politics. Um, Lithuanian government um, has uh, been very active in promoting uh, this very uh, particular view of the 20th century that uh, uh, portrays the periods of the Soviet and Nazi occupation as one long. Period of, of genocide. And um, they have been somewhat successful in exporting that view to other countries in the region. And in some ways, they have become uh, a memory actor of their own within the EU. Uh, domestically, there certainly are um, uh, different views on this. There is domestic political contestation in Lithuania, there are groups. Jewish and non-Jewish who are fighting against this narrative of uh, double genocide, who are trying to show uh, empirically and with historical data the very uh, big difference between the period of Nazi occupation and the period of Soviet occupation, the, the level of terror, the, um, the, the, the technology of violence, um, the ideology behind these uh, projects uh, as, as, as obviously quite different. So I don't want to portray Lithuania as speaking with one voice. Um, There are also younger generations of Lithuanians who are interested in in uncovering some of this uh, Jewish past and Jewish culture of Lithuania. There are people who are non-Jews, who are taking Yiddish classes, who are trying to uh, revive um, some of the old shtetls. There, There is a little bit of a movement to recapture some of the really Uh, rich um, and very important uh, uh, heritage of of Yiddish-speaking Litvaks, Lithuanian Jews, and bring it into conversation with today's Lithuania. But at the level of official um, narratives, uh, that is still a very minority view.
1: Yeah, uh, and I see that in um, working on Polish-Ukrainian relations and especially writing histories of regions like Galicia, Um, certainly in in Warsaw and and Krakow and um, in Lviv, Kiev, there is the study of of Yiddish, uh, and um, (laughs) against the the nationalist regimes in both Poland and Ukraine, an attempt to to preserve the memory of the Holocaust in Ukraine. Um, I have to ask about the elephant in the room, and that's Russia before we move to um, the the final question about what you're working on. So you describe Russia as a memory entrepreneur uh, in, in the stakes of Holocaust remembrance in the 21st century. So the fact that, that Russia has also been institutionalizing its foundation myths uh, and in, in particular after the invasion of Crimea in 2014, uh, I think offers a, a new sort of pattern for justification. What do you see in, in the Russian case? What makes Russia such such an entrepreneur or, or maybe even a model for others like like Dodik or, or Orban or, um, or, or peace in Poland?
2: Yes, the case in, of Russia was very interesting, uh, interesting uh, to me uh, because Russia, in some ways, is is using uh, the Holocaust maybe the most strategically of of many of these countries because it's trying to uh, uh, diminish political opponents and to marginalize them by just calling them fascists. And so we all remember how the Russian government talked about the Maidan um, uh, revolution in Ukraine and the and the pro EU uh, protesters as as fascists and talked about how. Uh, there are all these uh, um, symbols of uh, Ukrainian uh, neo, or actually old fascist and now neo fascist uh, uh, leaders, and try to talk about how nobody should support Ukraine um, be in this fight with Russia because they're just a bunch of fascists. So the problem becomes becomes what happens when Russia is partly right, and what happens when we can find. Uh, pictures and, stat- and statues of Stefan Bandera and uh, other uh, uh, Nazi collaborators and anti-Semites among pro-democracy movements in Ukraine. Uh, what what happens uh, when any attempt to in Lithuania talk about the uh, participation and complicity of Lithuanians in the uh, murder of their fellow citizens? What happens when Lithuanians say, well, you're just talking like Putin and you're just using Russian propaganda? So Russia has been incredibly successful in um, uh, creating a window uh, for a, a very specific way in which uh, the Holocaust can be understood and interpreted in the region. And almost everything that happens uh, in Lithuania or in Ukraine or in Belarus or in Latvia or in Estonia is interpreted as something that is pro-Russian or something that is anti-Russian. I encountered this myself uh, in Lithuania when I was trying to use some documents that showed um, anti-Jewish pogroms by Lithuanians on the eve of the Holocaust, the few days before Operation Barbarossa. So these were pogroms by Lithuanian Uh, citizens against their Jewish neighbors uh, that really were uh, done outside of German supervision. And there is a lot of documentation about this. And I was told many times by Lithuanian historians that I should not use these documents because these documents are Soviet. And I said, well, yeah, but they're, they're documents. (laughs) And the fact that they were, (laughs) you know, and, and so, but it, 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 even my own research became politicized so quickly because I was dismissed immediately as somebody who's you know talking like the Russians do, and so of course Putin uses this, and of course Russia uses this, and so instead of actually talking about the historical evidence and actually uncovering what happened, this entire project of Holocaust remembrance becomes something that the Baltic states or Ukraine are using to fight their real enemy, and that is today's russia
1: well, thank you uh, i I will say we've taken a lot of your time, um, but I'll end with with two questions and and I I think one will be short and one will be a little longer. What is the the great takeaway point for Yellow Star, Red Star? And then in working on this problem of the institutionalization of, of memory and the politics of nationalism and forgetting. What sort of things are you interested in in working on now in your research?
2: Sure. So the big takeaway that I would like people to um, to have from this book is that Holocaust remember uh, Holocaust con- continues to be uh, incredibly difficult and fraught memory in today's Eastern Europe. So many years after World War II, the memories are settled the uncovering of those memories is fraught with political problems. And the Holocaust continues to be East European present. It is just not, it's not only something that is in East Europe's past. And I wanted to have people think about what does it mean to have memory solidarity with suffering of others? What does it take away from our own memory of our suffering as an ethnic majority, the memory of us suffering as Serbs or suffering as Poles or suffering as Lithuanians, to also acknowledge the immense suffering of our Jewish citizens. What does it take from our own national dignity to talk about the dignity that our fellow citizens have lost? So I, I, I would like people to take away this more kind of moral concern about having solidarity with memories of those others. Um, In terms of what I'm working on now, I continue to be interested in physical sites of violence and physical sites of atrocity. Um, I have been working on a couple of projects that look at how uh, physical remains of atrocity sites, so uh, uh, for example, remains of concentration camps or remains of uh, uh, shooting sites, memorialized or unmemorialized, continue to be problems in contemporary foreign politics. So, for example, what does it do for Croatian foreign policy, for Serbian foreign policy, for Bosnian foreign policy to have the site of Jasenovac be at the kind of border of those three countries? And, and how do politicians use sites of memory and sites of violence uh, to talk really not about the past, but about their present? What can these physical spaces teach us about how memory is used for contemporary
1: political purposes? We've been speaking with Jelena Subotic, professor of political science at Georgia State University. She is the author of Yellow Star, Red Star, Holocaust Remembrance After Communism, published by Cornell University Press in 2019. Thank you for being on the New Books in Eastern European Studies podcast today.
2: Thank you very much. This was great.